Thanks for joining us today. This is Kevin Mullins, pastor at Broad River Church. And we're really grateful that you checked us out. If this message has been inspiring to you, we hope that you visit our website at broadriver.church. And you can go to the plan a visit page and see if there's a time that you could visit Broad River Church in person. You also can give at that same webpage. And you can check us out also on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Broad River Church. We hope this message is a blessing to you. morning, everybody. I'd like to invite you to Scripture. John chapter 21 is where we're going to be today. It's on page number 907, if you're using the blue Bibles that are down there in front of you. We're starting, for the second week, we're in a series called This Burden is Light. And in this season leading up to Easter, I've asked you to be open to being examined. And not necessarily self-examined, but for us to be open to being examined in the light of the life that God has demonstrated for us. This burden is light. And we said last week that, that we're living under this invitation that Jesus brought to us when he said, I want you to take my yoke upon you. Over the next few weeks, I'd like us to see what it looks like to take off one way of living and putting another way of living on. Remember that that yoke is the, the rabbi's way of doing business. When you would follow a rabbi in the day of Jesus, you would talk about attaching yourself to a rabbi's yoke, putting a rabbi's yoke on. All of us have a yoke. And today I'm talking about replacing that yoke, removing the yoke of comparison specifically and putting on the yoke of calling. That's what today is about. We all have a yoke. Our story is not a neutral one. Your, your story is contested. And as we discover this gap between our actual self and our desired self, we'll ask God to give us a vision on how to close that gap. John chapter 21, verse 15, we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
How young can you remember being when you were comparing yourself to someone else? I realize that I've been comparing myself to others my entire life. I, I went to a Christian school where we kind of had this self-paced program. It was called Accelerated Learning. You could learn at the pace, individual students' pace, could, they could learn at that pace. And, and I was really good at it. I, I thought I was really smart. And so I, I would just be blazing through this learning. And I think it was in my second grade year, I, I finished my, my whole year by about a little more than halfway through. And so I was able to start and do other things and learn other things. But then in my third grade year, year, we had a new girl that came to town and came to our school. Her name was Mary. And I realized right away that I was not going to be the king of the school anymore. And as fast as I would learn, Mary would learn faster. And I can remember being in the third grade and realizing that I wasn't the king anymore. I was a young worship leader and, and as a young worship leader, I could do a lot of things that came natural to me in, in singing and, and playing the keyboard and leading in worship. And I, just to be honest, I probably thought at that point in my life I was pretty hot stuff. And I can remember feeling that way until I went to this worship conference and there was this woman just a couple of years older than me. And everything I could do, she could do about three or four times better than me. She could play the, the keyboard. She could play the guitar. I couldn't even play the guitar. She was a way better singer than me. She was an incredible worship leader, and she did all of it while wearing heels. And it shook me up so much that I remember wondering if I was even called out to do that anymore. So as I was developing as a person, there is this force that is taking hold of me. You can see the same thing all throughout the Bible. I love how real the scripture is. And since I'm following after Jesus especially, I love how raw and transparent the gospels are in the way they talk about Jesus' disciples. They're following him around, these disciples, and amazing things are happening. Things that the rest of humanity will we'll talk about for a long time. And in the middle of it all, we see a person who struggles like we all do. His name is Peter. And he, he, Peter was always concerned about what his place was. Like, what's my rank in the disciple order? He wanted to be known as one of the greatest. In fact, at the very end of Jesus' life, at this dinner, Peter is the one that makes a lot of noise to make sure that everyone knows that he's the one that's most committed to Jesus. He's the real deal. He would never forsake Jesus. And then just like hours after making all of that noise, he gets confronted by a teenage girl and he just absolutely collapses. All of this posturing, all of his desire to be the greatest is over. In just a few minutes, Peter denies Jesus. Jesus, by the way, had told him that's what was going to happen. And Peter said, no way, it'll never happen. But then he did it. And to make worse, one of the toughest things in the Bible, I believe, is this phrase that after he denies Jesus, the story says that Jesus turns and looks at him. And that was it. Peter leaves and, and weeps. The Bible says he weeps bitterly, just crying, and he's done. He's heartbroken. He's guilty. He, he was a fisherman before, so he goes back to fishing. He goes back like kind of like nothing, none of that stuff with Jesus happened. Like Jesus had never called him at all. He goes back out on the lake. I can't imagine 
what he thought about when he's sitting on that boat in the lake. And then, and then there's a shift. Peter gets word that some people have seen Jesus alive. And someone said when they saw him, Jesus had mentioned Peter's name specifically. And then as he's fishing, Jesus appears on the shore. And as soon as Peter knew it was Jesus, he jumps out of the boat. The story says he swims to where Jesus is. Now, a lot of people say Peter did that because he loved Jesus so much, and I'm sure that's part of it. But I think just as much Peter was desperate to apologize before everybody else showed up. Hey, hey Jesus, about that whole denying you three times thing. Let's talk about that. And that's where the verses that we read happen. Jesus and Peter are now on the beach around a fire, and Christ completely restores him. Right then. And in the conversation, we can see how bad things go when insecurity and comparison are in charge of your hearts. There's this whole back and forth where Jesus asked Peter three times, hey, Peter, do you love me? By the way, I don't think it's a mistake uh, that Jesus asked him three times. It's one time for every time Peter denied Jesus, I think. And and by the way, that's not for Jesus' benefit. This is just for Peter. Peter, Jesus wants Peter to be able to completely account for every time he denied Jesus. It's amazing. Do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. And feed my lambs. Do you love me? Jesus, I love you. Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Jesus, you know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. It's an epic restoration. And right in the middle of it, Peter gets gripped by comparison. Did you see it? Jesus had just got done forgiving Peter, and he says, all right, now that's done. Now follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, and the one who was also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Really, Peter? Now's, now's, this is the time? You, you just got done getting over like the worst betrayal in the history of the world, and, and now's the time for this? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, but what about him? What about this other guy that you love? And Jesus, you can see, is not down for this at all. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, a.k.a. What's it to you, Peter? As we examine this gap between our actual selves and our desired selves, and we look to put on this yoke of Jesus, this new way of living, we need to come to grips with the power of comparison to distract us, or even worse, to keep us from moving forward. Even in the best moments of our lives, comparison is there, just kind of back there in the shadows, always becoming part of the conversation, always looking to promote me, even if others have to pay for it. John Tyson, a pastor from New York City that I, I really appreciate, says it this way, comparison is the root of most of the misery we feel in life. And, and the reason is that comparison makes it impossible to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Comparison will hang you up. It will catch you in its trap. 
And this is big because it, it doesn't just keep you from seeing yourself the way that God sees you. It changes the way you see other people too. You've done this. You compare yourself to someone else that seems to be doing better than you, and then all of a sudden you feel insecure and inferior. When you see them, they are a reminder that you don't have what it takes, that, that you're falling behind. So that means now you just have to work harder to try to keep up, but the more you try to do, the more that you're caught in this same cycle. It's a cycle of despair. Comparison eats away at your sense of worth and your self-esteem. And it works another way, too. You compare yourself to others, and you think you're doing better than them. And all of a sudden, you feel superior. And then the people around you are reminders of how good you are and how well you're doing. And, and, and when that happens, judgment and pride creep in. I'm talking today about a new way of living Jesus wants you to enter into. And I want you to know that both of these ways of comparison are equally harmful. There's a conflict going on in you between a world that wants to make you a slave and a God that wants to make you free and those that are controlled by comparison have unstable and insecure souls. Hear me this morning, living by comparison produces fragile souls. Look at how quickly Peter collapses, how quickly we collapse. Things are going good. I just got a new job. I just got married. I just got baptized. And then comparison steals it away. Yeah, but look at the job she got. Look how happy those two are together. They just got married too. They seem really happy. Look at how quickly that guy is learning his Bible compared to you. He just got baptized too. He's learning the Bible way faster. Comparison aims to steal your joy and tell you that you aren't good enough and it's not just about you. It's not just about you. You can't love people deeply. You can't experience what community really is when comparison is a leading force in your life. We are called to live in sacrificial love toward each other. Was I supposed to say spoiler alert? Okay, spoiler alert. We are called to live in sacrificial love toward each other. And it's impossible to give your heart away and your lives away to people that we have a need to be better than. I want you to write this down this morning if you're taking notes there in your connect card. Comparison is the enemy of compassion. One of the things I hope to live and that I hope that we learn as a church toward each other and toward Norwalk and toward Fairfield County and India and Honduras is this feeling that Jesus got one time. There's another time that we see a story. He's on a boat and he's riding up to the shore there's a whole lot of people waiting on him. And the Bible says when he sees this crowd waiting on him, he's moved with compassion. There is this deep gut level experience that he has. The Greek word there is the word splankna, which means feeling something in your bowels. I want to feel like that. It's, and it's not just, I know, as easy as saying it's a journey to that place. But here's something I know for sure. Comparison is the enemy of compassion. Look at how the apostle, apostle James says it in, in James chapter 3, verse 14. We read this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
Whoa. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Some of you have experienced this in the church. You've experienced it in the place where you should least expect it, the place where it's at least acceptable. Some of you have experienced this in your family. That place where you expect to find love and instead people are using each other and manipulating each other to feel good about themselves. Let me ask you this morning, what does that experience feel like when, when things are out of order? What do you feel like? I, I believe you feel insecure. So I want to ask you the difficult question today. Has your desire to compare made other people feel that way? Have you ever seen the, the, the monkey experiments where the currency for monkeys is little stones? we got a picture of it here on the screens. And the, the monkeys are able to trade these stones for cucumbers. So they give the trainer a stone. The trainer gives them a cucumber back. Everything is working fine. The whole economy is working great until one monkey, when he gives a stone, is given a grape and the other monkey loses it. The non-grape-getting monkey stops trading his stones for cucumbers, and he'll even throw the cucumber slice back in the trainer's face. In fact, at one point, the cucumber monkey just refuses to eat the cucumber, and he leaves it there, and the grape monkey comes and takes the cucumber and eats both of them. When we are controlled by comparison, the image that God created us in is reduced to this animal-like behavior, and any community we hope to experience is poisoned by measuring ourselves against others. So where does this come from, and how can we replace it? I want you to write these down. I think there are at least three causes of comparison. First of all, I think the first cause of comparison is we have a misplaced sense of identity. We are confused about where our identity comes from. So we get a part of it from our parents and from friends as we grow up and from friendships and part of romantic relationships. We get some from work. Some of our identity is shaped by various encounters we have and experience along the way. But the world we live in makes it hard to know at a core level who we really are. So then we find ourselves putting on different identities based on who we're around. We find ourselves always reinventing Always trying to keep it fresh, making sure we look successful. Like Fairfield County says, success looks like pretending to be doing well. Posting all the best pictures in our best moments with our good hair and our good side showing. Telling the story that sounds awesome. By the way, I'm standing up here with my good side showing right now. I'm doing it right now. We're scared to be seen for who we really are. We're terrified that someone will know where we actually are what we're actually struggling with. Misplaced sense of identity. Comparison is also, secondly, caused by struggles with our accomplishments at work. Some of you feel it hardest here. I I had to change my, my LinkedIn profile last year because when I read it one day, it was ridiculous. It was way over the top. You'll see someone who works 
you know, I don't know, in finance. And it'll say something like, I'm a leverage specialist in emerging markets working on derivatives to leverage maximum profitability for investors with minimal risks. So choosing that identity and then performing that identity and then measuring how well we did performing that identity, it cultivates comparison. Third, fear of missing out is a cause of comparison. Everyone's connected. We know everything that everyone is doing at all times. Used to as a pastor, I had to wonder what people in the church were up to, but now it's just kind of all out on social media. We see everything. Not all of you, I know. Some of you are feeling really smug right now that you don't have a Facebook profile. I hear you. But there's this constant stream of images, travel, escape weekends, sabbaticals, early retirement cruises, road trips, promotions, parties, and most of all, fun. And then we compare it to our monotonous lives. Wah, wah, wah. We try to cram everything into that dash that we talked about last week, that little space in between birthday and death date. And hear me today, when we live just for today and not for eternity, life becomes a really heavy yoke. So how do we replace that yoke with the yoke of Jesus? Back to Peter on the beach. It looks like Peter is going to miss out on restoration. Jesus is trying, and all Peter can do is to see John creeping up behind me. He's in danger of missing out on everything, but Jesus knew the cure for comparison. And I want you to check this out. You need this. Turn to someone close to you today and say, I need this. Right here in this story, we see the stubbornness of Jesus. Did did you know that Jesus was stubborn? Yeah. In a lot of ways, Jesus was stubborn. But right here, we see his stubborn love. We see his relentless pursuing love. Because you can see this battle going on with Peter's insecurity and shame, pulling him back to a familiar place. And Jesus' love just keeps calling him back, seeking him out, redeeming him from the past. I mean, think about it. Jesus just got back from the dead. He's got stuff to do, y'all. He's got limited time to make it all happen. And what is Jesus doing in this moment where he's got so much to do roaming on a beach looking for Peter? That's where his heart was. I've got to find Peter and make sure he's restored back to me and back to his calling. Don't miss that. In this exchange, everybody, every time Jesus asks if Peter loves him and Peter says yes, Jesus reminds him of his calling. When Peter said, you know I love you, Jesus, Jesus didn't rebuke him and say, well, it doesn't seem like it based on recent results. Right? He doesn't say, oh, okay, then if you love me, stop denying me and running away because I'm trying to build a church on top of you, man. No, he just reminds him, okay, then take care of my sheep. The first time Jesus said, do you love me? In verse 15, he said, do you love me more than these? Who who are these? I don't think it's disciples. I don't think Jesus would have led Peter into some sort of new comparison scenario. They're standing on the beach right next to Peter's boat and 153 fish. The reason we know is because the Bible tells us how many. So I think it, it matters. So, so here's, here's what I think. I, it's just a theory. It's not original to me. 
I think that Jesus knows that when Peter gets insecure, he's prone to going back to way, the way life used to be. I wonder if anybody can identify with that. I think Jesus was saying, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than your old job? Because if you do, stop fishing and care for my people. I know you feel ashamed and it makes you feel like going back to the old places, but my love is calling you to be a shepherd. Embrace your call. Hear me this morning. Calling is the cure for comparison. Calling is the cure for comparison. And the cure worked. Peter sees it. He he allows himself to be reshaped. And if you follow Peter from here, you will see this dramatic shift. He, He wrote a pretty nice section of scripture. And just listen to what comes out of his mouth later in his life. 1 Peter 2, 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are all things that he used to struggle with, but God made him free. 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The apostle of comparison becomes the apostle of compassion. And he embraced his calling. It is calling that is the cure for comparison. At the end of his life, listen to him leaning full on into his call. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, toward one another for God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble Peter's been transformed he's been freed from the trap of comparison I think I I might have a chance to go to Israel soon and when I go I hope I get to stand on these same shores of the Sea of Galilee where Christ restored Peter and and not just to be on that ancient site but to be on the shore where Peter realized his call Peter's dash was changed forever. Listen to me. God wants to change your dash forever. Just like Peter, you have been given a new identity and a new call. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians that we have been given every spiritual blessing. Say every spiritual blessing. You don't have to compare yourself to someone else to find you're worthy because all of that has been settled by Jesus' love for you. You have been given fullness and Him. And I know that the world you're living in is trying to make you think otherwise. So I just want you to marinate for a minute in your true identity with Christ. And I just want you to hear this. 
Hear this. First of all, I am accepted. Hear me. I am God's child, John chapter 1, verse 12. As a disciple, I am a friend of Jesus Christ, John chapter 15, 15. I have been justified, Romans 5, 1. I am united with the Lord, and I am one with him in spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. I have been bought with a price, and I belong to God, 1 Corinthians 6. I am a member of Christ's body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I have been chosen by God as adopted as his child, Ephesians 1, 5. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins, Colossians 1. I am completely complete in Christ, Colossians 2. I have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 4. For, second, I am secure. I am free from condemnation, Romans chapter 8. I am assured that God works for good in all my circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me, and I cannot be separated from the love of God, Romans 8. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I am hidden with Christ in God, Colossians chapter 3. I am confident that God will complete the good work he started in me, Philippians chapter 1. I am a citizen of heaven, Philippians chapter 3. I have not been given the spirit of fear, but power, love, and sound mind, 2 Timothy 1. I am born of God. The evil one cannot touch me. I am significant. I am a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and the channel of his life, John 15. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit, John 15. I am God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3. I am a minister of reconciliation for God, 2 Corinthians 5. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2. I am God's workmanship, Ephesians 2. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. What would happen to your spiritual confidence? Heck, what what would happen to your regular confidence and your joy and your peace if you started living out these truths on this list instead of seeking satisfaction by what you can accomplish in comparison with others? Here in this season of Lent, it's a a good practice to leave something behind in order to pick something else up, in order to focus your heart more closely on Jesus. Why not spend 40 days leading up to Easter fasting from comparison and feasting on these biblical truths? If you want a copy of those, by the way, they're available on your way out. I think your life could move into a place of freedom and joy. I think if you'd fast from comparison, you'd be more present to the people that you love and notice things happening around you. I think you'd be able to celebrate when others are having success and be happy about it. You may even find that you are being liberated from the curse of comparison. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your word assures us of how our identity is confirmed. Lord, that it's not confirmed based on the feedback that we get from others. It's, it's not confirmed based on how much we are able to succeed, based on our performance. It's, it's not confirmed by how other people talk of, of us, Lord, but we've heard your scripture just washing over us. Marinate that in this morning, that we are significant in you, Jesus, that you have confirmed our identity, and we give you praise for it this morning. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, that you are doing a work in us as we look to take your invitation seriously, to take off the yoke of comparison and to put on the yoke of calling. We thank you for what you've accomplished in us this morning in Jesus' name. And we say amen. Bird.